0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today at Daniel chapter 10 and 11. I'll describe kind of why we're doing the two chapters together in a moment. And we won't read both chapters, but I am going to read Daniel chapter 10 and the first few verses of chapter 11 to kind of set things in for us. As always, you can follow along in your booklet or look on your Bible, um, and we'll have the verses up here on the screen. So we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 10, and I'll be reading all of it, and then the first four verses of chapter 11. So, I encourage you now, hear the word of the living and sovereign God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking. As I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. And a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, "'Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia.' Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless." How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir everyone up against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Uh, this past week, obviously, uh, many people are aware it was Veterans Day. And this is always an interesting uh, week for me, because it's not only Veterans Day on the 11th of November every year, but November the 10th is actually the birthday of the Marine Corps. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So we Marines make a big deal out of the birthday of our Corps. Um, And so all week long, I was kind of thinking a little bit about both my time in the Marine Corps and then in general as a vet. And of course, a lot of people who are veterans are saying things to each other. And it's interesting that then this week we come to this uh, text in Daniel chapter 10 and 11, which is dealing with what we're told is a great war. But what's interesting about it is all of this is actually one long vision. Daniel 10 to 12 is all one vision and conversation that Daniel has. So unlike before where we've seen like in Daniel 7 there's a vision. In Daniel 8 there's another vision. In Daniel 9 there's Daniel's prayer and then he gets a vision at the end. Here it's all one long vision. And so we're going to be breaking this vision about the war down into two weeks. And we're doing this uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the vision's giving greater detail to much of what has already been covered before. Uh, Chapter 11 gives a lot of detail about the the rise of Greece and in particular, uh, it being split into kingdoms and then specifically Antiochus Epiphanes coming. But since we've already covered that a lot in Daniel 8, I'm only going to mention it a little bit briefly today and we're mainly going to turn our focus on Daniel 10 today. And then next week, we'll conclude the book by looking at Daniel chapter 12. But again, in saying this, I want to note that, you know, these are a little bit, they're, they're pretty unusual chapters, as I was just reading through this. This is not, you know, I, I assume all of you, if you had quiet times this week, they didn't turn out the way Daniel's did here, right? With this vision, and you're down, and you can't breathe, and angels are coming. This is unusual things that are going on. Uh, what does God mean for us to learn out of this? Given everything else we've already seen in the book of Daniel, what is unique here and how do we apply it today? So we're going to dig in. Now, I want us to to note that there is in Daniel chapter 11 what's described are coming visible kingdoms and wars. And again, we've seen this all before. Daniel 11 is giving us a lot of information about Persia and Greece. A little bit, I think, about Rome at the end, but specifically Persia and Greece. Notice in verses 2 to 4, we see again that there's going to be these kings of Persia and then the king of Greece is going to arise. And we've seen before that there's this mighty king who we know from history as Alexander the Great. He's going to rise up. He's going to conquer everything. And at the height of his power, he's going to die. And rather than having a son take over his kingdom, which is normal, it's going to be split. Here we're told to the four wins we've already seen in daniel chapter 8 where there was uh the one horn becomes four horns his kingdom is actually split into four parts and we've seen all of this in daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 7 and daniel chapter 8 that's part of why i'm not going to go into detail in daniel 11 but daniel 11 does break out a little bit more and gives us a little bit more information and just in case you're reading it and wondering what it is if you, as you look at it this week the heart of Daniel 11 is a struggle that it talks about between the kings of the north and the south. For example, in Daniel eleven eleven, we read, the king of the south will reach out in rage uh, and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. Now, we're not told who they are, but what these are is, this is all told from the perspective of Israel. The king of the south is the part of Alexander's kingdom that became known as the Ptolemies, or the Ptolemaic kingdom. It is Egypt. The most famous Ptolemaic ruler that you would know is Cleopatra. She's actually the last of the Ptolemaic rulers when Rome finally comes in and says, you all are done with all this. So that's the kings of the south. The kings of the north, north of Israel, is the Seleucid Empire up in Syria. That was the part of Alexander's empire that took over Syria and that whole thing. And throughout Daniel chapter 11, you read about the king of the south and the king of the north, and it's actually many, many different kings over about 150 years of time. And they're raging back and forth as these two parts of Alexander's former kingdom are fighting. And the reason it's important for Israel to know is Israel's basically just the highway between these two kingdoms that keep fighting back and forth. It's, they're in the place you don't want to be because they're raging back and forth with their doing it. And there's a real focus uh, in uh, Daniel 11, as you move through the chapter, on Antiochus Epiphanes, the man we saw that was the little horn in Daniel chapter 8, who did all the terrible things to the Jews. And he gets far more time and space than like the whole Persian Empire does even though his is a very short reign, because it has more impact on the people of God. That's why there's a real focus there, and it goes to it. And if you're really interested, if you get a good commentary, I could rec- some, recommend some to you, they'll go through and tell you, okay, these verses are about this kingdom, uh, you know, this part of the, the Ptolemaic kingdom, and this part of the Seleucid kingdom, and here's what's going on, and they'll give you the information. But it's basically really similar to what we've seen before, and we do it. Now, there's one other thing in Daniel chapter 11 that's a little bit unusual. And it's the last couple of verses, from verses 36 to 45, the last few verses. And notice in Daniel 11:36, all of a sudden it says, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now, if you notice here, This king is not called the king of the north or the south, because he doesn't seem to be one of those kings. He seems to be somebody else. And in fact, in another verse later on, it actually says that the king of the south and the north are going to fight against this king. It's referenced. Some take this to be the Antichrist, a reference to the Antichrist, and that may be true, but I think it's primarily actually Rome. Remember we saw in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7, there's four kingdoms. And this, I think, is the coming in of Rome, because actually part of what led to Antiochus Epiphanes' fall was a Roman general showed up and told him, you're going to stop this war you're doing. And Antiochus said, let me think about it for a while. And the Roman general drew a circle around him and said, you think about it before you come out of the circle. And so Antiochus, in a fury, said, okay, I guess I don't have any choice, because by this point, Rome was actually the dominant power. They were the one that were calling the shots, but what ended up happening was the Greek kingdoms invited Rome into the area, and that's going to lead to the fourth kingdom on the scene that's going to have this great effect on Israel. But in either event, all of chapter 11 is about earthly visible kingdoms and wars, and we've been looking at that, so that's why I'm not going to spend any more time on it today. Because what's really interesting in this section is not earthly visible kingdoms and wars, but the invisible war. The war that has not been really talked about, the war that we can't see with our eyes, and that Daniel is given insight into here in Daniel chapter 10. So when we go back to <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 10, notice what happens in the first four verses, Daniel kind of sets things out. And he tells us in verse 1, it's the third year of Cyrus, the king of the Persians. Now what that means is, It's two years after Daniel chapter 9. So the prayer that we had looked at in Daniel 9, where Daniel had cried, he was given the vision of the 77s and all of that, was two years prior to this. So two years later, Daniel is praying. And I want you to notice, this is the final vision. This forms what what literary people call an inclusio. It's like bookends with chapter 1. Now, why do I say that? Notice here in Daniel chapter 11, we're told this vision's given to Daniel, who is also called what? Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. The first time we're told that is in Daniel chapter 1. This is the last time we will ever read the name Belteshazzar in Scripture. It's the first and the last time. If you remember, in Daniel chapter 1, the big issue was Daniel abstained from food. Here we're told Daniel is abstaining from food. In both cases, it's not a total fast. He's abstaining from choice meat and wine in both of them. So we have that in Daniel chapter 1, and we have it in Daniel chapter 10. But not only that, and even most importantly, in Daniel chapter 1, we have Daniel at the beginning of the exile, and now here in Daniel chapter 10, we have Daniel at the end of the exile. In fact, what's going on here, and when we're told that it's that it's a couple of years, it's the third year of Cyrus, Cyrus has already given the decree that the Jews could return. And they've already gone home. But what has happened when they go home, and you can read about this in the books of Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah, they go home, they start rebuilding the temple, and all of this opposition arises. And the people get discouraged, and they actually stop rebuilding the temple for about 15 years. They stop. Daniel, it appears, has heard about this. And it's distressing. He'd been praying about when's the exile going to end? When are we going to go home? What's going to happen with the temple? And all he's getting back is there is persecution, there is struggling, things are not going well for the exiles back in Israel, they've returned their home in Jerusalem. They started rebuilding the temple, but they never even got to finish rebuilding the temple. So Daniel therefore spends three weeks in mourning and in prayer. This is why he says, "I'm not, I'm not putting lotions on myself. I'm not eating choice food." Uh, he's in mourning and prayer uh, for the people. And interestingly enough, you and I wouldn't necessarily pay to this attention to this, but we know that it includes the time of Passover by when Daniel tells us that he's praying on the 24th day and the angel comes. This includes the time of Passover, which is another reminder to Daniel. uh, Passover celebrates God delivering his people out of Egypt. Daniel is looking and saying, I thought we were delivered out of Babylon and out of Persia. I thought we went back home. I thought this was going to be like the Passover. But what I'm hearing is we are still struggling and suffering. We can't even finish building the temple. And so the plight of the returning exiles is prompting great concern for Daniel, and he enters an extended period of serious fasting and prayer. And But what happens in response to that, in verse 1, we're told, notice it says that it's message true and it concerned a great war. And Daniel was given a vision to give him understanding of this great war. And we're going to see that the great war that's really being talked about in the vision to start with is actually an invisible war. Long before the physical war that's going to be seen, the visible war that's going to be seen, there is a spiritual war. So notice now, when Daniel gets the vision, we're given this interesting note at the beginning that there's this heavenly messenger. And the messenger is described as a man dressed in linen with a gold sash around his waist. And he's got eyes that are like eyes of fire. And he's got a voice that is like a multitude. Now, if you know your Bible, that may sound familiar. That's almost identical to John's vision of Jesus in, John, in Revelation chapter 1. It's also very similar to Ezekiel's vision of Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, the question that scholars go through is, is this actually an angel that comes to Daniel, or is it what's known as a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in another form prior to the incarnation i take it to be a christophany and then the later person that's actually standing there talking to daniel is an angel here's why i take it that way you can take it either but again john has the similar vision in revelation 1 and it's quite clear revelation 1 is writing in terms that are like daniel john says i i saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and then the son of man appears to him and the terminology is very similar to daniel Ezekiel 1 is again the same. But also notice, Daniel here, did you catch? Daniel says, I saw this figure. Nobody else did. But they all had a response even though they couldn't see the person. They were all terrified. They were all struck down. Notice, does that, that should remind you Paul on the road to Damascus. You remember Jesus appears to Paul. Paul says, i I heard the voice. Everybody else just thought, some thought it thundered, and they were all terrified. Very similar to what is going on here with uh, Daniel. And so all of this leads me to think that it's Christ who was there in Daniel chapter 3 when they were in the fiery furnace, uh, and also the one like a son of man in Daniel 7. But it could just be an angel that God has sent, and the angel is kind of taking a form similar to what Christ will give in the book of Revelation. But either way, notice it's a terrifying vision. The companions don't even see it, but they know something is up, and they all run and hide, which is somewhat comical because I don't know how you hide from something you can't see, but they go off and they're trying to do that. But notice Daniel himself. He tells us a couple of times in here that he's drained of strength, He says, I became pale, and at one point he says, I even fell into a deep sleep. Notice there at the end of verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep. Now, that might remind you, can you remember another time that the Lord showed up and somebody fell into a deep sleep as God was revealing something to them? That's Abram, okay? When Abram was promised The promised land in Genesis chapter 15, the same response happened as it's happening to Daniel here, which is another reason I believe it's actually the Lord that he is seeing there. But notice, it is a terrifying vision. In fact, Daniel has to be told, do not fear, twice. And it's not do not fear, do not fear, it's do not fear. Daniel tries to not be afraid, and then the angel, this is clearly an angel at that point, has to tell him again, "Uh, I've already told you, don't, don't be afraid, chill out. Daniel is terrified, and not just twice, but three times we're told he's so weak he can't stand or even speak, and the angel has to say, be strong, Daniel, be strong. Let me, let me give you strength. Three times this goes on. Now, I point this out because let me, let me say, in a world that there are a lot of people who will tell you, oh, I was sitting down and Jesus and I were having coffee in the morning." You can take it to the bank. They weren't. This is what it's like to have a real vision of the living God. You need to change your pants afterwards. It's terrifying. It's not a chat. Three times this prophet of God, who is, I remind you, the lion's den the exile, all of the stuff we've seen, he's come through that, this is his response to the vision. Our God is a consuming fire. For, understand that, friends. So be wary of those who tell you they just have all these visions of Jesus and they're chatting and they're going on. No, that, that's not the way it is. People are, you can't even talk when he shows up. Now, what Daniel's then given a vision of is this invisible war that has been surrounding his prayers. Notice in verse 12, the angel, and at this point it's clear it's an angel. If that was Jesus earlier in in verse 10, it's a different figure. When Daniel falls asleep, then he wakes when there's a a hand shaking him, and that would clearly be an angel at this point, because the angel says, look, don't be afraid. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding. Since you, you started this 21 days ago, you were humbling yourself before God. Your words were heard, and I was sent in response to them. So I was on my way, but here's an interesting thing. In verse 13, he says, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Daniel, the second you started praying, the Lord sent me. But I got detained by the prince of the Persian kingdom for 21 days. Now, this is not Cyrus. This is not an angel saying, I was on my way, but Cyrus, he's a big guy. No. Cyrus can't stand for 21 seconds. He can't stand for 21 milliseconds against one of God's angels. The prince of the Persian kingdom, just like the prince of the Greek kingdom we're going to see in a moment, is actually a demonic power that is associated with Persia. And we know this because, notice, Michael had to come. Michael, one of the chief princes, came and helped me. And Michael is an archangel. He's the only archangel actually identified as such in the scripture. In extra-biblical literature, they had listed up to seven of them. But in the Bible, only Michael is called an archangel. Not even Gabriel is. And Michael, notice here, is called a prince. He's one of the chief princes. So the princes that are being spoken of are angelic powers. Michael is on the side of the Lord. But these other ones are delaying the messengers God has sent to Daniel and did it even for 21 days. Now this is a rare insight into the fact that when God's people are praying, we're part of an invisible war between powerful angels of God and fallen angels who are in league with Satan. Now I want to be clear, Daniel didn't know any of this was going on. This is somewhat like you remember in the book of Job. Poor Job just sees what's happening around him, We're given understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. Job didn't know that. Daniel also didn't know what was going on, but the angel says, look, I came to you 21 days ago, but there's been this huge warfare going on, and I couldn't get free until Michael came to help me out, and now I've come to give you the vision. And this is a rare glimpse. We do not get many of these in the Bible. Okay, this is not a huge focus. There's not a lot of detail in the Scripture about this, but we're given enough to know that it's happened. But secondly, and related to that, and in some senses even more important, is the fact that the invisible war uh, involves human events. He's going to start talking as well about the things that are going to happen in the future. So notice, starting in verse 20, because there's kind of a conversation back and forth about, I'm too weak, and the angel strengthening him and all this. But down in verse 20, he starts to give him the revelation. And he says, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Now, this is all the stuff we talked about that chapter 11 lays out. This is the rise of Alexander the Great and him being split into four kings and all this. But it's telling us the angel and Michael and the demonic power surrounding Persia and Greece are going to be in conflict. And in fact, we know from history they're going to be in conflict over a couple hundred years of time. This is going to go on. So the invisible war that's happening with these angels ends up working out. You and I don't see the invisible war. But we do see what's happening out here in front of us that is the outcome of this war. And so all of this in chapter 10, that I'm going to be fighting with the prince of Persia and then the prince of Greece is going to come and we're going to be struggling. And, and you know, and he even says, look, I took my stand to help Darius in his first year, but Michael had to come and help me out then as well. All of this is saying that, look, the things I'm going to describe to you in chapter 11, those are going to be real, visible wars. You can study them in history books, but behind them and prompting them is an invisible war that you don't read about in history books, but it's actually the more important war. And it's actually the war that you and I are part of by our prayers and other ways that we'll come to in a moment so here what we're learning in Daniel chapter 10 there's an invisible war between God's angelic forces and the forces of Satan and this invisible war is related to and affects the visible rise and fall of human kingdoms okay that's why Greece is going. Alexander the Great's gonna come up and Alexander thinks he comes up why I'm smarter and better than everybody else, but see, n- n- no, because the big hairy demon <laughs> that's behind you is winning right now. That's why you rise up. Make no mistake about it. And look, and this is an important thing for us to understand, because we can sit there and, oh my word, this is going on, and what happens? Notice what the angel says uh, in verse 21. All is going to happen. I'm going to go off and do all this. but first. I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Because see, here's the reality. Satan and his angels rage. The king of per- the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, they're all out doing things. The battle is already decided. And it's written down. And it's in the book of truth. And Alexander does what Alexander wants. And Antiochus does what Antiochus wants as long as God allows them. But God's will is going to be done. The battle is not in doubt. So notice, I'm telling you, Daniel, what's written in the book of truth. See, there's a lot of scholars, and they say, well, this kind of prophecy can't happen because how can it be that God knows the future? Okay, How can it be that God can control the future? Ah, he's sovereign. He's known from end to beginning what was going to happen. And he's bringing it about by his own ways. God's eternal decree and plan is sovereign over all human history. And Daniel is learning this here, and so... Satan and his powers are going to fight against the angels and ultimately the people of God. Because make no mistake, in Daniel chapter 11, this comes out to Antiochus Epiphanes killing Jews, slaughtering a pig there in the temple and doing all this. But understand, behind all of that is this spiritual warfare that's going on. But Daniel's being reminded God's sovereign plan will be accomplished in the end. It may look today like Antiochus is winning God rules. It may look later like Rome is winning. God rules. And friends, whatever's going to happen in our future, whoever is going to rise up and be animated by the spirit of Antichrist, know this, the Lord Jesus Christ rules. The Lamb has overcome Y'all can clap if you want, because it's exciting news, and it's good news. And this is what Daniel is grasping out of this, that God is going to accomplish it. Now, I'm going to turn to applying the word, because I want us to think through what this means for us. And so I have two questions before we come to the Lord's table. First, do I have a proper understanding of the invisible war? See, Daniel 10 gives us a fascinating glimpse into this. Because I want to remind you, this isn't all over the Bible. You don't see a lot about this. Daniel 10 is one of these rare places where it kind of pops up through the water for us. But it's there the whole time. Okay? It's, it's all lying there the whole time. And this invisible war rages all around us. But there are two errors that we can make in response to that. And we see both of them today from Christians. There's two ditches on the side of the road. The first one is that some act as if the invisible war does not exist or is not really that important there are Christians who live as functional materialists what I mean by that is you know materialism is the idea that if you can't touch it see it feel it smell it it's not real there's only matter there is no spiritual reality now Christians look at that and say, well, that's not true. But you can declare with your mouth it's not true, but live as if it is. And there are Christians who ignore that uh, that there is a spiritual war going on. And what that leads to, when you and I ignore the great invisible war, what we are tempted to do is start acting in a worldly manner, trying to accomplish heavenly purposes with worldly weapons. Okay, which is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Paul tells in Ephesians 6, we're going to come back to all these men, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the more we ignore the invisible war, the more tempted we are to view everything from a materialist perspective as if materialism is true, and the only weapons we're left with are the weapons of this world. If you tune into After Hours, I wrestled this week on what I was going to talk about in After Hours. I'm going to talk about how Peter, on the night Jesus was betrayed, fell into this exact problem. Think about Peter's actions on the night Christ was betrayed. He thought he was going to protect the Son of God with a sword. Might be a dumb idea. Okay? And he didn't do what he was told to do, which was pray. Pray. But see, if you're not looking at the invisible war and you get fixated on the visible war, the only thing left are worldly weapons. And that's not really what our primary call is. Now, whenever Christians in the church try to use worldly weapons, the kind of things I'm talking about are political and military strength. Okay, When the church is engaged primarily in that. Now, that does not mean, should you and I be involved in voting and politics? Yes, we should be. But make no question about it, folks. That's not the work of the church. That's not the work of the kingdom. That's the work of the kingdom of man. That's me as a citizen of this nation. Don't confuse the two. And when the church merges those two, it's always a disaster for the church. Not just the world, for the church. Because we're we're misapplying the two things. If you think you're going to fight against the prince of Persia that's being talked about in Daniel 10 with politics, with sword, you're out of your mind. You can't bribe them with money. None of that works. It's an entirely different conflict. And so when this has happened, it's been disastrous for the church, and it brings disrepute to the gospel is what it ultimately does. So everything we do for God, please hear me on this, my sanctification trying to live a holy life before God, evangelism, reaching out to those who don't know Christ, apologetics, arguing against those who try to undermine the truth of Scripture, raising a godly family, all of these are ultimately spiritual in nature. And if you and I aren't engaged in spiritual warfare behind the scenes, I don't care if you've read every book that's ever been written by any evangelical ministry on how to raise your children in the Lord, it's not going to work. If you're not engaged spiritually, it's not going to work. I don't care how brilliant your arguments are for the faith and how many, you know, atheists you cut off at the knees, it's not going to accomplish anything if we are not crying out to God in prayer, if we don't realize it is a spiritual thing, it's not about winning an argument, it's about the Holy Spirit opening eyes. You're here because when you are dead, God spoke and raised you up. And friends, if he doesn't do that, it's not going to happen to our friends, no matter how brilliant my arguments are. Understand that it is an invisible spiritual war. Now, on the other side there are a group of christians who say oh i know there's an invisible spiritual war but they're acting as if they've got more information about it and everything becomes this spiritual war and god has not revealed that to humans here's the fact again this is we're given very little information about this and we have to remember daniel's being given direct inspiration to write scripture okay that's what he's being given here And let me go ahead and say, you're not, nor am I, nor is any guy who's got a YouTube channel and tells you he's getting all of these visions. He doesn't know, because there is no more scripture being written, okay? What we need has already been revealed. So there are those who think part of doing this is there were a lot of these uh, last year. A lot of prophets stood up and predicted what was going to happen in the election. And they were wrong and then they didn't repent I'm being honest and it really irritates me because if you're gonna stand up and be a prophet of God when you're wrong you better say I was wrong because when you're told so-and-so is gonna win an election there's no oh but this happened no no no. if you were told so and so is gonna win so-and-so is going to win period that's it and if you said it and it didn't happen, you were wrong. But see, lying behind that is an idea that somehow I've got special insight. And see, it's very tempting to think Linda and I are having a fight, and the reason is there's a big demon on your side right now. No, that's not the problem. The problem's just my own sin nature. That's the problem. Okay? Do not go identifying. See, this is people on the other side. I've got such insight into spiritual warfare. I know exactly what demons are doing what when. No, you don't. It's too hard for us to figure out. I remind you, who is it raised Babylon up to take Israel into exile? Yahweh did. Who raised Persia up to replace Babylon? Yahweh did. Who raised Greece up? Every question is answered with Yahweh did. So we don't always understand why God is using, who God is using, what God is doing. That is not our call. I don't need to know what the Prince of America is about right now. And notice here, Daniel doesn't go in and start commanding the the Prince of Persia to do anything. He doesn't do any of that. Daniel has a different call. And so do you and I. And that leads to the second question. Because uh, again, and I'll point, it's not just Daniel. When Paul goes to Athens, here's another example. Paul goes to Athens and he sees all the idols that are in Athens, and we're told he's grieved. But what we're not told is that Paul gathered a group of Christians around and they named the demon over Athens and they took authority. We're not told any of that. Paul starts praying. Paul starts proclaiming the gospel, that's what he does. And that's the the question for you and I, do I have a proper response to the invisible war? If I'm avoiding those two extremes, what am I supposed to do? Knowing this information, what do I do? Well, the first thing is we remind ourselves that Christ has already won the war. We engage in spiritual warfare knowing he has already run the war. There are many verses we could pull out, but Colossians 2.15. Paul's talking about the demonic powers, these same guys. And this is all over the book of Colossians. Because many people in Colossae, it appears, got too fascinated by all of this. And they were trying to figure it all out. And here's what Paul says you need to know. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the what? Okay, now y'all help me out. Is the cross past, present, or future? Okay, it's done. He won at the cross, which is also a pretty interesting thing. I might have said he won at the resurrection because that's a pretty powerful moment. But notice when he won at the cross. Christ is there. Christ is naked. Christ has been whipped. He has been beaten. It appears all is lost. He appears forsaken. And in that moment, Paul says, he's crushing the powers. He's breaking them all. Not in what we count as strength, but what appears to be the weakest moment of all. That's how he's winning. Now, see, I don't like that. I don't. I like the part where we're strong. And that's usually not when God's at work. It's usually when we're weak. And that's when Christ wins and he does it. So Daniel is having to look forward and still waiting. That battle's away. Christ has already won it for you and I. I remind you, and, and thanks to Tom for the songs he picked out this morning. Uh, the Lamb has overcome. Friends, you and I live in the victory, and you need to remind yourself of this every day. Whatever you see going on with the Prince of America and the Prince of China and the Prince of Russia and whatever other Prince going on, remind yourself every day. Step up and say, it's a glorious morning. The Lamb has overcome. We've won. All right? Remember that. Now, the second thing that we do, knowing that we engage in spiritual warfare through three primary things, personal repentance, prayer, and proclamation of the Word. Remember, Daniel's prayer in in Daniel chapter 9 was all about confession and repentance. We're told here that Daniel has been fasting and humbling himself. And note that that phrase of humbling himself, it goes back to the, the fasting was done on the Day of Atonement, was the one day Israel was required to fast because it's the day when you are humbly confessing your sins. You want to be used in spiritual warfare, the best thing is to get on your sins and get on your knees and confess your sins, not the sins of the person you don't like. My own sins. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing. And it's not just Daniel. Notice in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, James says this. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But see, he explains what resisting looks like. What is it? Come near to God and he will come near to you, which is submit yourselves to God. Notice the parallelism. So how do I resist the devil? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's how you resist the devil. You get down and confess your sins to God. I repent of my sins before God. That is what resisting the devil primarily looks like. And as if it's not enough, James comes back in James 5, 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is what? Powerful and effective. See, we like to pull that out from the context and so i got power in prayer, man. I got up and wrestled with the demons over Africa this morning. James says, well, here's how you're doing that. You're confessing your sins. Not what we typically hear. I bet if you go out and buy books on spiritual warfare, you're not going to see a lot about that. But it is primary right here. This is what we learn. And so, please hear me. No amount of spiritual warfare in prayer... Claiming victory, all of that kind of stuff is going to be of any value if our lives are worldly, full of sin, and contradictory to the Word of God. Because this isn't just, oh yes, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me my sin. That's not what we're talking about here. No, James, wash your, wash your hands, purify your hearts. He, he's not talking about me getting justified here. He's talking about as a believer, this is how I draw near to God. Lord, examine me. Lord, show me. Lord, I don't want to walk in sin like the world. That's how we begin spiritual warfare. Second part is prayer. I remind us in Ephesians chapter 6, and we won't look at the whole text, but Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is exactly what Daniel 10 is about. And Paul says, therefore, I want you to put on the full armor. And he goes through the armor, but then notice what the battle is. The battle is in verse 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. The battle is actually in prayer. And so we have to remember, again, this is where some Christians want to take the spiritual thing and I want to look and say, you know, that guy that got elected, he's causing all these problems. This neighbor of mine that's causing, there's this demon behind him. We're not told to do any of that. What we're told to do is to pray, to cry out to God, to ask God to be at work here, and to ask God relative to, look, there's all kinds of things. Should we pray regarding an end to abortion? Absolutely. Should we pray regarding our broken view of sexuality in America? Absolutely. Should we pray that we do not have enough concern for the poor? Absolutely. I mean, we can continue going down, but I don't start naming who's God. I cry out to God in prayer. He knows what's going on, He knows how to do it. And I realize that I put on my armor, and my battle is never if I can see them, they're not my enemy. And just ask yourself can I see that person? And if the answer is yes, they are not your enemy. Enemy. Did you hear what Johnny led this morning in prayer? I don't even pray for the people persecuting and killing Christians. I'm not praying vengeance on them. I'm praying for them to repent. I'm praying for them to turn. So we're called to do that. And the way we're part of God working out his plan is praying for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, praying for other believers, praying. Uh, for the gospel to prosper, things that are directly revealed in Scripture. I want to urge you, a great way you can do this, and if you're not part of it, we do Maryland Praise every month, and I had a meeting yesterday. We're trying to get more churches involved, and there's kind of a team of us helping lead this. On the 2nd of every month, we're asking people to sign up for half an hour to pray specifically and ask God to revive the church, to awaken sinners, for there to be racial reconciliation, for the cause of life from womb to tomb. We're praying for our leaders, all these kind of things. You want to be involved in spiritual warfare, there is a great way right there. Sign. Join up, be part of that. And then the last thing I'll say, the third part of spiritual warfare is proclaiming the word and refusing to compromise on God's truth. We, we proclaim the word and we live the word. Okay, notice Paul does this in Ephesians 6, 19, and 20. The very next thing after he said, I want you to put on all this armor and pray to engage in spiritual warfare, he says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul's saying, pray. I need to keep proclaiming the word of God. And notice verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Okay, see, here's the reality. Paul's proclaiming the Word of God because that is part of our spiritual warfare, and there's a cost. And the cost is, Paul says, as I'm trying to write to you right now, the chains are jingling as I'm sitting here in jail. But I will not compromise. I will not stop proclaiming the Word. I will not stop living in obedience to the Word regardless. And friends, that's not just Paul that's you and me. Want to engage in spiritual warfare? Proclaim the Word of God to your neighbors. Want to engage in spiritual warfare? Live in obedience to the Word of God. And when there is a cost, accept the cost. That's exactly what Daniel did, and it's what we're all called to do. In fact, in Daniel 11, we're not going to turn to the verse, but in verses 30 and 32, it mentions that Antiochus is going to come in, and he's going to try and get people to stop obeying the covenant. He's going to try and get them to compromise and to give in. But we're told in verse 32, but those who know their God, they'll resist him. Those who know their God, in fact, we're told, will do exploits, because They're not going to compromise. They will not be part of that. They will stand by God. That is what Daniel was called to do. That's what the people in Antiochus' day were called to do. That's what the apostle Paul was called to do. And it's God's exact call to us. If things continue the way they are in America right now, on the path we're on, there's going to be increasing cost to believe, to proclaim, and to obey the Word of God and you know what that's called the normal Christian life we've lived in a weird bubble let's just accept that recognize that and say doesn't matter what you do you can slice me into a million pieces every one of them is still gonna say Jesus is Lord and every one of them is still going to obey and if that's not popular that's okay if you're gonna ostracize me that's okay This is how we're involved. So even if we suffer for remaining faithful, God will use it to overcome and accomplish His will. With that, we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And I want to remind you of an interesting phrase in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 23, Daniel's talking about his shepherd who cares for him. But in Psalm 23, verse 5, we're told, You prepare a table for me, where? In the presence of my enemies. Friends, see, we come to this table because this warfare is going on all around you and me, constantly, whether we're paying attention to it or not. But here's good news. Because Jesus has overcome, he spreads this table for us right in the presence of our enemies. And it's a reminder to them that the lamb has won. Because rage how they want, they can't keep you or I from the right to come to the table. And we eat, and we feast, we're fed, we're nourished, we're strengthened by God while the princes rage, because there's nothing they can do. So I want to encourage you, if you are part of God's people, come here to this place of respite and renewal. The battle goes around, but, but we, we come in here together, and we come to this table, and the Lord speaks to and ministers to you and to me, and our enemies can do nothing to stop it. So I encourage you, receive strength this morning for the battle. For what I received from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's go ahead and take the, the bread, the wafer. Lord Jesus Christ, we hold this bread as a symbol of your body. And Lord, when we hear about this spiritual warfare and how mighty these angels are, Lord. It could be fearful to us, but we have been told that when your body was broken on the cross, you were victorious, and that you have conquered them, and we live as, uh, in the train of your victory. So, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for your body, which was broken for us. And we thank you that when your body was broken, it broke the back of the enemies of God. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, we lift up this cup, the cup of the new covenant, the cup that represents your blood poured out. And Lord, we are grateful that by this blood we have been bought, we have been redeemed, we have been made the people of God. But we also thank you, Lord, that in Revelation 12, where we read about Michael and the angels fighting and the devil being cast down, we're told, Lord, that we, your people, overcome them by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we are grateful that Jesus' blood has not only secured our peace with you, but that it has secured victory. And deliverance for us now and forevermore. Thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And let's stand together and cry out to the Lord, and then we'll have our word of benediction. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the invisible war around us. Lord, we pray. That as your church, we would be found on our knees crying out. That we would not wage war the way the world does. That we would not entrust ourselves to worldly weapons, nor even worldly attitudes or ways. Father, in the kingdom, the way up is the way down. Confession and repentance... And humbling ourselves actually brings exaltation and strength. So Lord, this morning we humble ourselves before you, admitting we would be powerless in this war. What could we do? But Lord, you have given your spirit to us. And so Lord, rather than being fearful, we are full of courage because greater is he who is in us. Than he who is in the world. Lord God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us and to rise up within us this week. O oh Lord, may we, as we cry out to you night and day, be part of your working out of your will in this world. O oh Lord, may we, as we humbly submit to the Holy Spirit and see the fruit of the Spirit being cultivated in us. May we be part of seeing your will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would fill us and strengthen us that we might do all of these things for the glory of our God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with the strength that you provide. And God's people say, Amen. Uh, As a benediction, I'm going to do what we've done sometimes before. I'm going to just do part of St. Patrick's Breastplate Prayer. And I encourage you to receive this and know, again, the good news is we don't fight in our own strength. God gives us the armor. And in fact, I hope you heard this morning, you know, the, the encouraging song, God is the God of angel armies. See, even Michael may have to fight back and forth with the devil. when God shows up, the battle's over okay so here who is your shield may Christ be your shield today Christ before you Christ behind you Christ beneath you Christ above you Christ on your right and Christ on your left may Christ be with you Christ be in you alone and in multitude near and far for all you face, and for all your life so that you may live in the protection and the power of His blessing. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.